Okay. Well, uh, my name is Jason Law um, from an organization called One Mission. I'll kind of share about that in a second. But just to make sure we're all in the same room, this topic is turning highly dependent communities towards self-sustainability or towards sustainability. Um, so as long as that's where you guys want to talk about, then we're in the right room. Um, I started an organization called One Mission four years ago. Uh, we're based out of Phoenix, Arizona. We started doing work in our first community on a border town in Rocky Point, Mexico, which is four hours from Phoenix. Um, it's considered what we would classify as a highly dependent community based on a couple of things that happened there that I'll get into in a second. But just roughly what highly dependent community means, so you, we're kind of on the same page of what, what does that even mean. Um, to me, highly dependent is they're, they're, you have a community that is completely dependent or highly dependent on outside relief coming in. So they're not able to uh, really hold up any sort of infrastructure, medical infrastructure, economics, housing, food, church. Some of, these, some of those types of pillars of a community are sustained by complete outside relief, mostly funding. So when we look at terms of a highly dependent community, we're, we're measuring how much outside uh, support is, is needed to sustain that community. But we also want to keep in mind that uh, all communities are codependent on each other. I mean, even countries and continents are codependent on each other. So I don't think it's to, we're not going to get to the extreme to say we want a community to exist and completely self-sustain it, self-sustain itself. Um, also, the word sustainability is a word that's – there's you got the Webster's dic Dictionary definition of it, which is kind of something set in motion, and in, unless something stops that motion, it's going to con continue to sustain movement. And then you have kind of these other terms of sustainability, like is it more about the trajectory of something or is it an actual destination? To me um, – and I'll just put that – kind of lay the framework – to me um, – Sustainability is more of a trajectory than a final destination because we don't really know what a, what a fully sustainable community looks like. So I just want to kind of start there so we kind of say, well, what, what are we even defining here as highly dependent and what is a self-sufficient community? Um, the goal today for me is to give you guys some principles. That I have five that I've laid out that, that uh, I think are really important to turning a, a highly dependent community into – towards a sustaining community. These can be applied in highly dependent communities or low dependent communities, but they can also be applied in when you guys go out into the field, either short-term or long-term development work. There are principles that you guys may have read in books that you're reading. Um, you may have, this may be the first time you hear about them, but um, I've tried to outline kind of the core principles that it's taken us to turn the community of Rocky Point, Mexico into more of a, a sustaining traje trajectory. Um, this particular community that, that, that I'm speaking about in Mexico, um, there's about 50,000 people that live in this particular town. The barrio, which is kind of the suburb slum area, there's 15,000 people that live there. Um, 15,000 people in a barrio, there's 10 different NGOs working in that barrio. So it's a very small community, but it has a huge amount of resources being poured into it. There's a lot of different NGOs that get attention to it, including us. When we started working there, we kind of laid some core principles out to say we were going to do some things different than the other NGOs were doing, which were kind of risky, but I'll kind of share what those were. Um, 
and hopefully, you know, you, maybe you guys will take some of that into the field when you go to say, okay, maybe this is what that guy in Kentucky was talking about, you know, that, that, that type of thing. So I'm just going to try to give you guys some principles. Some of them may raise some questions. Some of them may challenge some traditional thinking, um, and in which case we'll just do Q&A after and, and we'll, we'll have a discussion. Um, this is these principles also let me just lay out the foundation that a lot of it is just a conversation of best practices nobody's figured out how to alleviate poverty otherwise we wouldn't have poverty right so there's there's best practices and there's what I call worst practices so we're just trying to be real and say okay here are some best practices for developing sustaining communities and, and making our investment in that community last longer than we were there so um, the first principle that I'm going to kind of share with, there are no really particular orders, so just because it's number one doesn't mean it's the, the number one uh, principle. Begin with the end in mind. Um, what is the end result we're looking for, and let's work backwards from there. If you were going to attempt the journey into this forest that we see in the picture, um, would you just pack a bag and start walking into the forest? Probably not. So you would have a plan, you would have the goal, you would say, okay, what are we going to do to accomplish our journey through this forest? Um, when we enter into a community or partner with a community, how often do we have an end game in mind? Sometimes we don't have an end game, we're just there on a short-term trip, and the end game is just to get through the week. Sometimes the end game is we want to build a medical clinic and we want to treat 1,000 people a week or whatever the, those goals are. Oftentimes we're leading with the wrong question. The, the, the question of beginning with the end in mind, how do we begin with the end in mind? Who defines the end? That's one of the most important questions that you can ask when entering a community, especially a dependent community, because if the, if the end is defined by us as outsiders in a boardroom in Kentucky, then oftentimes we've missed maybe some tools, resources that could be used in the community, meaning if, if the locals aren't part of the blueprint that we're trying to put together to win, then we end up winning for them and not with them. And whenever we're in that situation, we've created a, a relationship between us and, the, and them living in poverty that is unhealthy. That's what creates unsustainable results. So no matter what your passion is or your plan is, um, in this room it's medical, you know, different, different rooms I might be in, it might be different things like housing or food. Whatever the initiative is, whatever God's called you to go do in the field, the end game has to be defined by the locals that are part of that process. Two things happen when you do that. One, they're probably the most important thing that you're teaching them. Hi. No, no, that's fine. When, when you include them in the blueprinting, the probably the most important thing that you're teaching them that doesn't mean a lot to us because we don't see those results is you're teaching them how to identify problems and solutions. When we teach them how to identify their problems and most importantly their own solutions, that's a process that when we leave, they still have. They still get to keep. Especially in the medical field, uh, we want to see instant results. We want to help right away. And, and that's our passion and, and we get that. But if we can teach them to leverage some of their own resources and solve their own problems, then we've given them a tool that maybe a medical degree didn't even we didn't even need to give them. Um, second thing that, that happens when we include them in the blueprinting phase is 
oftentimes, and I mentioned this before, we, we create a blueprint in a boardroom that we feel amazing about, but by the time we get into the, into the mix of it, we realize, whoa, this wasn't what we thought or what we read about, or we haven't been here long enough. And there's, there's oftentimes resources or people or leaders or infrastructure in place that maybe you didn't know about before you got there. So one of the things I would encourage anybody to do before you go into a field or even when you're partnering with another organization is to make sure that you're looking at the local infrastructure and are we really capitalizing on that and not undermining that. That's really difficult to do in the states when we're 3,000 miles away or 200 miles away. So in our community in, in Mexico, this one particular community, um, we had a blueprint before we went there. We made mistakes because of that blueprint. We went down there and we said, we're going to do it and it's going to look like this. And sure enough, a year later, it didn't look like that blueprint. And rather than getting frustrated by that, we embraced that and said, it doesn't look like that because the locals now have started to take on the initiative. So no matter what uh, program you're running or what what type of passion you have towards poverty alleviation, this, this principle can be applied to beginning with the end in mind but having them be a part of what that, what that end is. Um, the key phrase that I, that I try to use um, everywhere we go within our organization and around is we want to win with them, not for them. If we ever create an opportunity where, or, or a situation where we're winning for them, we end up feeling great about our ministry or about our newsletter or about our results, but we may have stripped their dignity and the opportunity for them to get the win, whatever the win is, which in most cases is betterment or some sort of better situation. Um, that's, that's about it regarding um, beginning with the end in mind. Um, I'm going to show this slide real quick and tell a story uh, about – this is, this is a picture of the barrios of Mexico, um, the community that we're working in, and those are clothes lining the streets. The background on these clothes, there's so many NGOs and so much relief being poured into this community because the perceived need is clothing that the community has begun to line the streets and almost pave the streets with these clothes. So when I talk about a lot of clothes. I'm talking about thousands of garbage bags of clothes, truckloads, semi-trucks from the Goodwill from Arizona down to here, and then they just dump it on this community, and the communities line their roads with this. Th this is an illustration of when there's so much relief happening, they've created a dependency where the, the community doesn't even need to buy their own clothes, not to mention what that's done to the local infrastructure, the textile or economy or anything like that. This may be clothes in this instance, but it could be anything. It could be medical. It could be food. It could be business. And we have to be very careful about how we introduce uh, the outside resources into the community. Um, in this particular community and in most highly dependent communities, they're highly dependent because there may be way too many people working in the same area providing the relief. It doesn't necessarily have to be outside relief from the U.S. It could be local relief, but the principle of relief – being poured into somewhere may be undermining the development. So holistic synergy is kind of a term that, that we, we use, um, synergy that maximizes efficiencies and doesn't inadvertently undermine each other's work. 
if, if you guys find yourself in a situation where you've got multiple NGOs working in the same community, it's going to sometimes become frustrated if they're not operating under the same principles that you might be operating on, meaning you may be trying to empower a local nurse or a local, doc, local doctor to treat and train and educate, but another NGO might be coming in and just dispensing medicine and, and you know, creating this dependency. And How do you work through that? Um, the number one thing that we've found in order to create holistic synergy, with, which is other NGOs working together, is through vision. Vision and results usually unites. In our case, it's been the only thing that has united. For example, other NGOs working in this same, or, uh, this same barrio, they, they don't necessarily listen to me because I'm just another NGO working in that area. But they will listen to locals because they care about the locals. So in this particular case, we had locals come together in a committee fashion and decide they didn't want clothes anymore because it was the, the, the community would begin to be trained um, that this was undermining some of their development. So the locals went to the NGOs and said no more clothes. Now we helped coordinate and facilitate some of that, but it worked way more efficiently and effectively than me calling other CEOs or whatever and saying, hey, stop doing this. The same could be true with any sort of relief that's being poured in. When it comes from the community, usually the NGOs will respond. But the community has to buy into the vision of we don't want this anymore, which is very difficult to, to, to change. It's hard to change the mindset of a community that has free in their mind. They've been getting free forever. Why would they change that? If that was easy, we wouldn't have dependency. So I'm not uh, underestimating how difficult that is. But this particular illustration is a pretty intense illustration. Um, the next, the next uh, principle is individual development versus community development. Uh, I'll read this. Feed a man a fish and he'll eat for a day kind of considered individual relief. Teach a man to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime, individual development. But what happens when the fish disappear from the lake due to pollution or overfishing? Then it's time for a change of strategy. Someone has to figure out how to get control of the lake, stop the pollutants, issue fishing licenses, put wildlife management policies in place. Teaching a man to fish is an individual matter, but gaining control of the lake is a community issue. This is, a, this is from the book Dead Aid, if you've never read the book Dead Aid. But... Um, there is a difference between individual development and community development. And if we want to start to develop communities, we have to start to think systematically and strategically. Developing an individual has a lot to do with, you know, one-on-one -on -one de development and discipleship, which in the medical practice is treating, you're meeting with the patient, you know, and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, so I, I, I probably should have told you that before. But um, so when I say we, I mean we as friends in this room. I'm not a doctor, but... Um, community development is more of a system and a strategy. And oftentimes when we're in the field, we start to, we, we don't, we don't kind of lift ourselves up and look at the community. We just see what's right in front of us, right? Um, I'm going to show this picture here to kind of depict the difference between individual and, and community. And I, we use this to help cast vision as well with other organizations. Uh, what we have here is a lifeguard sitting, um, maybe a couple lifeguards out there. This lifeguard could be used as an analogy of an uh, expat missionary or a doctor on a short-term mission or something coming into a pool and sitting here, and he's going to dive in and save this person and then get him out. 
this is very doable on a short-term basis. Somebody can sit up there, they're highly trained, they dive in, they save a life, and they pull them out. That's an individual relief matter. And I'll be the first to say there are times for individual relief where lives need to be saved, usually when they're life or death situations. What happens when the pool looks like this? Now four lifeguards isn't going to cut it. So when we start to look at a community development from this standpoint, we start to say, well, it is an individual matter, but it also is a development strategy that has to take place. If we don't set up systems and infrastructure to s sustain and scale, then we're in trouble. If we don't, if we can't, th there aren't enough people that we can import in to keep saving these lives. The other part that we need to start to look at is the wrong time to, to teach somebody to swim is when they're drowning. The right time to teach somebody to swim is when we have a situation like this and we say, if we don't continue, if we don't start teaching them how to swim, we're just going to be left with more drownings. So I know that might be an elementary illustration. But I use this to kind of share the, the scalability and sustainability of your program. So, again, coming back to principle one, when you launch into a community or you go on a trip and you're starting to look at the end game, when we start to look at scalability and sustainability, you might remember this illustration here to say, okay, is what we're doing strengthening a system or is it a short-term we're saving a life? And both are necessary. Um, at certain times, but I think um, there's a lot of relief short-term going on, which is why we start to we, we see results from that, and then we have conferences that talk about holistic development. We have books like Dead Aid and When Helping Hurts that come out, and then they swing this pendulum over here that says, don't, don't do relief, come over here and develop communities, but both have to coexist, but we have to be the ones as the as the the ones going there to alleviate this to understand the difference and how do we build systems that can scale with a community. That has to be done through local initiatives. I know I'm kind of talking fast, but I wanted to, that's just the way I know how to talk, so sorry. Um, this is a picture of a house in Barrio, uh, in the Barrios of Mexico. Uh, compared this to the lifeguard on the perch. Uh, it, here's a picture of an angle of the barrio, so I kind of use this as the same illustration. Um, the third principle is build on assets, not needs. Too many times the first question we ask a community is, what do you need? We focus on what's wrong and we miss what's right. Our strategies for helping are driven by combating problems rather than strengthening potential the poor, no matter how destitute, have enormous untapped capacity. Find it, be inspired by it, and build upon it. I can't emphasize enough um, leveraging the, what you have locally to carry out what the end game will be, even mapping out what the win is. Um, this picture here is a medical clinic that we did in Mexico. This woman here... I know she looks Mexican, but she's not Mexican. She's American on a short-term trip. Um, she was either a nurse or a practice do doctor or something, um, handing out medicine. Very typical at a short-term mission medical clinic. You got the doctors, you know, bringing bags of medicine down and dispensing it. Um, these women in the in the pink shirt and beyond are locals that are helping facilitate the the clinic, and then we have the recipients getting the medicine. Very typical of what's happening around the world on medical clinics. 
what what is shocking here is this woman in the pink shirt is a registered nurse in Mexico, works for the government, and she was being used as a translator. Um, this was a couple of years ago. I, I share this also to share we're not perfect as an organization, and we made mistakes, in, and I would call it a mistake in the truest sense of not finding the resource that this is a local nurse. We're using her as a translator. She's fully capable of running this entire clinic without the use of this American doctor coming down. In all honesty, the American doctor could be handing out water or doing something else to empower the local nurse. In this particular case, what we see is the local nurse potentially being undermined and maybe being looked at in the community is, well, how come the local nurse isn't, isn't serving us, the Americans? Well, the Americans know what they're doing way more than us. And that starts to break this relationship down where the American doctors end up having way more authority and control and power than the local infrastructure. So in terms of undermining local infrastructure, what we have then is a broken system. And once we start breaking down systems, then we end up with the pool situation. So... Find the local resources. Identify the local resources. You can't find the local resources unless you have a relationship with locals. If you're partnered with an organization, they need to have local relationships. If you guys are going to start your own organization, the first thing you should do, in my opinion, before you even start treating is start to identify local leaders and local resources that you can tap into before you even get your bag out and start treating. Um, that particular statement, I, I know it is easy to say here and nearly impossible to do when you're there. When you're standing in front of a, a little boy in Mathari Valley that has malaria and needs medicine right now, the first thing you want to do is give him your own malaria medicine. I've been there. I get it. Um, and it, it, on an individual relief basis all day long. But when you start to look at systems that can scale, that can't scale because you only have so much medicine. So when you go into the Mithari Valley and you see the kid with the malaria, you start to say, what is wrong with this broken system and how can I start to empower locals to take care of this? Once we start to look at poverty alleviation through that lens, we'll begin to build systems and empower locals to take care of it. So when we leave, we don't create a vacuum of leadership or whatever adjective you want to use. Find the resources. Thus, the fourth principle um, I'll share, healthy reciprocal exchange. I'll just read these bullet points. Um, a lot of them, again, I'm not coining as my own principles uh, or my own verbiage. They're just uh, very apt to highly dependent communities. It's delicate work establishing authentic parity between people of unequal power but it, relationships built on reciprocal exchange, holistic compassion, make this possible. The challenge for those of, those of us in service work is to redirect traditional methods of paternalistic charity, that's doing for somebody that they can do for themselves, that word paternalism, into systems of genuine exchange. There's not a lot of models like that out there, but I'm going to tap into that in a second. Sometimes when we work so hard to develop efficient systems to dispense charity with clearly posted rules, we overlook the cost of human dignity. Human dignity is one of those things that we, we can't really see, 
but what we can see, especially in the medical world, is right in front of us. So we treat what we can see, but you can't really treat dignity without really being strategic about it. Systems of genuine exchange, I'll come back and say there aren't a lot of models out there that we can go, oh, let's do what they're doing. They're doing genuine exchange. But genuine exchange creates an equal relationship between this us and them mentality, the us with the has and the the has the have-nots, right? And we kind of feel that and we wonder, how come they have, we have, they don't type of thing? Genuine exchange is setting up some sort of system where they're either pouring in some sweat equity or they're doing something to earn the charity that they're receiving, okay? So we've adopted a policy at One Mission that nothing's free. Everything, ha- everything has a consequence. Even free has a consequence. When you give somebody something for free, it could strip their dignity. It, could, it comes at a cost of somebody. And measuring that cost should be one of the filters that you guys and all of us run our charity programs through. I'll share a little bit about One Mission. Um, we primarily build houses, which may be a surprise if you thought – why is this guy talking to doctors? But um, our model of genuine exchange is primarily why I've been asked to come share here because it's a different type of model. But we started building houses four years ago, but we weren't going to give them away for free. The houses that we build are 11 feet by 22 feet, so they're only a few thousand dollars. Um, they can be built locally. We buy all of our material locally. But the biggest kind of shift from our organization when we started was locals had to put in 200 community service hours to qualify for a house. So they had they, anybody could apply for a house, any, anybody that lived in that community, but they had to earn 200 hours, and then we set up committees within the community of locals, and they determined projects that people could earn their hours to do. So the locals determined problems and solutions, and then we leveraged a house to – to hours, and we use the hours to address problems. Problems such as teaching people how to do window gardening, problems teaching people how to read, teaching people how to wash their clothes, um, teaching people about faith in Jesus, teaching people about um, how to do all kinds of things, you name it. We probably have um, a half a dozen different teaching things where we're trying to build capacities, but then we also have community development physical programs where they're developing. For example, uh, people can pick up garbage at a a local school. People can go clean the local school. People can go serve at the clinic. People that live in the barrios that that do have a passion for healing and helping can go to the orphanage and help um, work with the kids there, all while earning hours for their house. This exchange model has risen some question as to, well, this is different. I thought we wanted to give houses away and meet the needs of people because they need it, we have, and we give it to them. But we, from the beginning, our organization said we don't buy into that philosophy. We buy into this genuine exchange philosophy. Not everybody agrees with it, but we have found that the um, enormous potential of local movement can develop a community. And through that program, we've yielded um, a little over 30,000 community service hours in four years, uh, which is uh, more community service than that community's ever seen in its history. And that's not coming from me. It's coming from the local government, which now the local government has caught in wind of this. The state government um, has caught in wind of this initiative. And 
we believe that this genuine exchange system can be adopted through other types of programs. You guys have, in the medical world, one of the difficult, in my opinion, one of the most difficult jobs because you're treating life and death. We're dealing with housing. People aren't dying in the bars of Mexico from not having a house. It's sad. It's terrible. It's unfair. Um, a lot of things happen when somebody doesn't have a house, but we're not dealing with death there. We're building houses in El Salvador and Nicaragua. People aren't dying from not having those houses, but you guys uh, have the difficult task of dealing with viruses and things like that. How do you create a genuine exchange system for that? I don't know that answer, um, so hopefully you weren't expecting me to have that answer for you. <laughs> but what I do know is that if we begin to have the conversation of the principle of genuine exchange, then through our creativity we can hopefully come up with some models that other organizations can mirror. Um, one model that we have – we don't do a lot of medical clinics in the barrios, but one model that we've dabbled in or tried is people can earn hours in the community through our same model of, of volunteering at the same places and earn a ticket to go to the Mex medical clinic that's being provided to get their checkup or to get their medicine or, or whatever. That type of leverage is – and I use the word leverage loosely, but again, um, I understand some of this may be um, um, problematic in terms of, well, is that fair? Is that is that really what we should be doing? Um, I, again, I don't know um, in the medical world, but I know for the housing crisis, if you will, in the barrios, it was it was the only thing that was necessary to lift this community out of its complete dependency. Um, when when we do a medical clinic. And we we don't bring in local resources. We're not we're not uh, empowering the local infrastructure, and we're just purely handing out and dispensing medicine that maybe they can't they could never afford. Um, on one hand, we're saving, but on the other hand, we may be creating a long-term dependency that they'll never be able to to get out of. So again, I don't know if a genuine exchange system model exists in the medical world. I haven't seen one. I don't know how it would work. I'm just suggesting. In our case, we're not dealing with life or death. We're just dealing with checkups for the flu and things, and we were able to create that genuine exchange to get people to come to the clinic. Um, one other point that I'll make about the medical side of the barrios is we trained one of the – we have uh, community trainers. We do community health evangelism in, in the barrios, if you've ever heard of that. But one of the trainers that we have that kind of manages that program is a nurse. She recruited and trained some locals who were earning their hours teaching other people in the community about some different things that were problems. One of them was worms, and one of them was lice. They were huge in our barrios. Um, they weren't killing people, but they were a huge problem. So we used house hours, families that were earning hours. They got to go learn about how to prevent lice and reduce worms and clean that up through a program, earn their hours, and then go knock on doors and teach people about that. And so we created that exchange system, but we lowered the amount of lice and uh, worms in the barrios. And we were able to create the stats to, to show all that, which is another mechanism of measuring your results. I know that's long-winded, but again, <laughs> um, creating genuine exchange is, is a piece of a principle to uphold dignity and to um, – develop and sustain your work. Principle number five, uh, trajectory, not destination. Uh, how will we know transformation is taking place? 
if we measure transformation in the end game by certain destination rules that we've set in place, um, when we don't hit those end games, we may get frustrated or we may see what's next, right? I like to think of things in more terms of uh, trajectory, not destination, which I kind of opened up with. We measure transformation less about um, a decision or a one one goal that we've met and more of have we pointed this family or this community on a different trajectory than what they were before. And when we measure things by that, we're a lot uh, – we're a lot more agile to be open to maybe what God's got in store, but also the community can begin to look more as an aim than a destination. Let me clarify that by saying a lot of times we want a community to look like what a, what, what a United States community looks like. The way they look, the, the food, the medicine, that we try to bring our community to their community, and the more their community looks like our community, the healthier they are and the less impoverished they are. That's problematic because that's not necessarily their culture. There are things in communities that will never look like our communities, one of them being some different relationships. I'll give you an example. In the barrios in Mexico, they have a tremendous sense of community in terms of sharing each other's resources, loving on each other. They don't have electricity, so they're out there, you know, cooking with each other every night. When the sun goes down, they're in their house together as a family with a candle, playing some simple game in the dirt. That doesn't look like my neighborhood. So if I'm imparting my community into that community, is that something I want to bring down there? I won't beat that point any any further, but if transformation needs to look more, in my opinion, like a trajectory change than before we got there. Does the medical uh, industry in that barrio or that slum or that community, has that been changed if we were to leave right now? A lot of times we don't, we don't know when we're even going to leave. I use the analogy we should usually always be walking towards some sort of exit. That's how you're going to turn a, a community towards sustainability. If you leave what what happens to them next? A couple pictures of some stories in Mexico. Lapita uh, was on our list to receive a house. She had earned a little over 100 hours, which took, took a couple months. Another NGO in the same barrios that builds houses. We build about 75 houses a year. They build about the same. They build free houses. They are houses you have to earn. That This particular NGO has local pastors determine through a list who gets the houses, okay? Um, this particular woman, Lapita, was on both lists. So she's on this other list with the NGO because why not, right? She, she's going to get a house. I won't blame her. And she's on our list earning a house, whichever one comes first. This happened about six months ago. The other NGO, the pastor went and knocked on her door and said, hey, congratulations, you're getting a house in three weeks. A uh, short-term team from uh, Arizona or Texas or something's coming down to build you your house. Praise God, we've sent them your bio. They're praying for you. They're going to bring you clothes for your kid. We're going to build you this house. Awesome. She looked at the pastor and said, actually, I've changed my mind. I don't want one of your houses. I'm going to earn my house through one mission. And the pastor said, are you crazy? That might take you another six months. And she said, well, I would rather earn my house than get one for free. That pastor called that organization. That organization called me and two, two things happened. One really good 
ha- thing that happened was what we see with Lapita. She rejected a free handout. She wants – don't underestimate their value of how much dignity they want. Um, but the other thing that happened is it's now put a wedge between us, another wedge between us in this topic. I won't even say the organization, but just the topic of how are, are, how are we undermining or uh, hurting each other's relationships. So coming back to holistic synergy, we have to begin to work together principally. Our practices may be different, but principally, what, what are the principles that we agree on? And for us, the principle is genuine exchange, but for them it's not. And so – we were unwilling to compromise that, but now we see what's happening. For us, we measure success or transformation simply by that. The fact that she now says no, she earned this house, is one measuring stake for us. Lou's and her neighbors. <clears throat> Last year, this woman holding the baby crying, she earned all of her 200 hours. One of the requirements we have is that they have to own their house or own their land that we build on before we'll fund the project. Luz um, found out about three weeks before we had she had earned all of her hours that there was a screw-up with the deed at the city, and she didn't own her land, and the city came to her and said, actually, this deed's split, and we've got a mess. It's going to cost about $1,500 to clear up. $1,500 down there is about the equivalent of $150,000 here. So she said, what am I going to do, right? Um, these community members uh, around her, which are her neighbors, went up and down the streets and raised $1,500 in three weeks for her, which honestly is the equivalent of me raising grand in three weeks. Um, when we funded that project and the house was built, this is the picture of her neighbors hugging her, and they're celebrating this victory. This is how we measure transformation. Maybe this has nothing to do with spiritual transformation, but this is how we would measure um, community transformation, neighbors coming together to help each other without the help of us or maybe with very little help, in our case, us funding this project. Um, To my knowledge, in working in these barrows for 15 years, this is the first time ever that neighbors have co-opted together to buy somebody else's land. Why did that happen? There's a lot of reasons why that, but... Uh, we're trying to facilitate more of that happening so someday we can leave and they're pointed on a different trajectory. I'm not sharing these stories at all to, sh- to say, look at what, look at what we did. Uh, this, I'm only sharing these stories as illustrations to show you maybe how to measure transformation, but, but most importantly, before we, we go to a, attack poverty around the world, we have to have some core principles that we believe in and what are we looking for uh, the end result to look like because if, if they're too short-sighted, we end up uh, maybe feeling better about our work, but is, is, are the results really there? Um, I won't share – well, I'll just quickly share this, this Edgar story. These are all locals that built a house. A short-term team canceled their trip a couple weeks before they were supposed to come down and help build. We do have short-term teams that come and help build alongside of the families. Um, They canceled. This happened three years ago. It was the first time that we built a house using all locals, so we didn't even bring a short-term team to build. And this was the first time that this particular barrio had ever seen a house be built without the help of any Americans. So this was a very big day for this community because – 
they're all Mexicans building each other a house, and we just simply funded it. So when it comes to turning a highly dependent community towards self-sufficiency or self-reliancy, it's simply putting them on a different path than what they were on before. There's a lot of strategies out there to alleviate poverty. Um, there's a lot of different uh, principles that people adopt. In our experience with a highly dependent community, these were some of the top, if not the top principles that I believe it took to start to see stories like Luz and Edgar, Lapita, to see that start happening. There's many more stories that I could share that have a lot more to do with spiritual transformation and things, but physical indicators of a community that says, no, I don't want the free handout. Um, what we're looking for now in this particular community is to start to see the infrastructure level start to say, we got this, guys. We don't need your help. The local medical infrastructure, the school's infrastructure that it has, doesn't have to be funded by outside relief. Um, where are we going? How are we getting there? What's our end game? Is our end game that, you know, my end game isn't to just spend the next 40 years of my life with a bunch of cool stories that I can put on slideshows. I, I, I truly want to see communities being lifted out of poverty. And my, uh, my journey is to figure that out. But um, it, it's certainly not going to be done by myself. So um, the goal is that you contextualize to the needs of the communities you're working in. What worked in Rocky Point, Mexico, may not work in Mathari Valley in Africa. Um, but some of the principles may. So I can open it up for Q&A, or you can leave, or you can come shake my hand, or so tell me uh, something else.